The following resource is from DesiringGod.org. Paul's epistle to the Romans is the greatest letter that has ever been written in the history of the world. Greatest because it's the greatest unfolding of the condition of the world and what God has done to save it and the way his people are to live in it. It's the greatest because it is the very word of God inspired by the spirit of God and more comprehensive than all the other inspired letters in scripture. It's the greatest because it bears the marks and carries the fullest message of the greatest theologian and the greatest missionary who has ever lived after Jesus Christ. It's the greatest because no other letter has given greater challenges to the greatest minds in history. It's greatest because no letter in history of the world has a greater effect, has ever had a greater effect on the formation or the reformation of the doctrine and life of the global church of Christ. It's greatest because of all the inspired letters in the New Testament and of all the uninspired letters in the history of the world, Romans has been used by God to save more sinners than any other letter in existence or out of existence. David Platt, last time we were together, recited from memory during his message the first eight chapters of Romans, and God saved students during that recitation. One young woman knew the very chapter in which she was born again listening to the book of Romans. Therefore, I have high expectations, great expectations, that as I try to unfold the message of the book of Romans for the greatest cause in the world, namely the cause of preaching the message of Romans to the unreached peoples of the world, I have great expectations that some of you will pass from death to life. And I have expectations that hundreds of you will find decisive guidance for your life in the preaching of the message of Romans, probably as a climax of all the other things that you've been hearing. Now, Paul has given me the encouragement to have that kind of confidence about decisive guidance being given in the preaching of the message of the book of Romans. He's given me that encouragement in the way he talks about his own calling and his own guidance in this. I want to draw your attention to this because I think one of the most pressing issues for all of you and, and for me at age 73, having completed my vocational pastoral ministry and having a chapter open up to me, not unlike yours. I mean, I, I told Noel five years ago when we finished, I said, I feel like a 22-year-old over again because I could do anything. So, wherever you are in your life, probably the issue of 
God, how do I know your will? How do I experience your so-called call? Now, Paul, in Romans 15, 20, speaks of his own divine guidance, his own spirit-driven ambition, and he roots it not in the blinding encounter that he experienced on the Damascus Road when God saved him and decisively called him out of being a persecutor into being an apostle. My, you would expect him when he's documenting his call to the unreached of Spain that he would go back there and say, that's where it happened. That's how my call was formed. And he doesn't. He never mentions that experience in the book of Romans. What he does is quote scripture. Here's what he says in Romans 15, 20, and 21. It is my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ is already named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but, now, my prayer is that Hundreds of you will say something like that. That's my ambition. I'm not going to stay here and build on other people's foundations. Piper did that all of his life. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go to a less reached place than all the places and a less reached people than most of the peoples you know. But what's the next sentence you're going to say? So verse 21. Let me start over so you get the flow. It is my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but, and then he gives the foundation, and it's not Damascus Road, it's Isaiah 52:15. As it is written, my ambition is to go to Spain and preach to the unreached as it is written. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Now, Paul expected all believers to read that text and not all to go to Spain. So how does that work in the argument? It works because the way God calls is by causing a text of Scripture, a truth, unshakable and inspired, to grip you. Not in one flash moment that disappears the next day, but holds you. It holds on to you week after week, month after month, year after year, until you say, I'm not doing this. I am not the one who's causing this text to have this effect on me. This is a work of God. And that blending of a work of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God constitutes the calling of God. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard him will understand. Amazing. Similarly, just lest you think this is an isolated thing, when Paul and Barnabas in Antioch of Pisidia on their first missionary journey turned from the Jewish synagogue where they had been rejected to go to the Gentiles, the nations in that city, what did they say? For so the Lord commanded us, so the Lord commanded us, 
And then they quote Isaiah 49.6. I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So Paul in Romans and Paul and Barnabas in Acts, uh, where was it, 13, rooted their call. Even though they had had these phenomenal experiences, they rooted their calling in the Word of God. And I think that's the way it's going to happen here. This is a Bible-saturated conference. You're sitting there listening to hour upon hour of the preached Word of God. That's not an accident. That you're here is a miracle. There wasn't anything like this when I was your age. Urbana was the closest. This kind of conference now was all over the place today. Incredible that people want to go here preaching and sing songs to Jesus. And the reason is because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to call people out of darkness and then call them into His service. So may God use this text and all the others to clarify, form, solidify, intensify, deepen your sense of direction in these days. Now, one other thing about the message of Romans. Lest you think that I'm squeezing Romans because I I have to squeeze this book uh, into an alien message, namely, it's at a missions conference, I've been assigned Romans, got to find missions here, and I'm going to force it to be what it isn't. Lest you think that, let me draw your attention to the fact that Romans is a missionary support letter. Almost all scholars would say this, a missionary support letter. It begins in chapter 1, verse 5, with Paul identifying his calling, I have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among all the nations. That's verse 5, chapter 1. That's my calling, bring about the obedience of faith among all the nations. That's why I do what I do. Then, near the end of the letter, chapter 15, verses 23 to 29, here's what he writes. So, I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and be helped on my journey there by you. That's why I call it a missionary support letter. I'm going to Spain. I'm stopping in Rome. Would you help me? That's a missionary support letter. He continues, once I have enjoyed your company for a while, when I have delivered the collection to Jerusalem, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. And in this letter then, Paul unfolds his life message so that the supporting church will know what they're signing on to. They've never met Paul. Many of them probably never heard of Paul. And now they are going to know big time 
who he is because of the most amazing missionary support letter that's ever been written. This strategy of support raising is why this conference aims at producing two kinds of Christians, goers and senders. That's the only kind of Christians there are except for disobedience. There are three kinds of Christians, goers, senders, and disobedient. And the reason we think that way is because of Paul's approach to support raising here. There's disobedient, there's goers, and there's senders. And he makes plain, Paul does not expect people to be disobedient. He expects them to be senders. He's the goer. He doesn't ask them to go, which is why as a pastor, I felt biblically warranted to say to my people, God does not expect most of you to go. But in this room, given the self-selective process of who comes, hundreds and hundreds, I believe, are to be so decisively touched in these days that you will go. So this conference exists because we believe by the preaching of the Word, with earnest prayer, a focus on the majesty of Christ, the glories of salvation, the reality of hell, the necessity of hearing the gospel in order to be saved, God will take hold of your heart for the sake of the nations and make you either world Christian senders or joyful, frontline, risk-taking goers. So here's what I want to do in the time that remains. I want to sum up this book, at least what I have time to do with it, in four main points. And we'll take them one at a time. I'll, I'll give you the point, and then I'll support it with Scripture. And I hope that as the Scripture washes over you, the points will be made unshakable. And we've, you've heard a lot in this conference so far about the wrath of God and about the reality of hell as being an underpinning burden that we have. Here it is, and I'm going to linger on it for a few minutes because most of the time we've just been passing over it as an obvious reality. You need to understand that the song we sang a few minutes ago, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. My worship leaders went to conferences where they hated that song. They would not sing it. They came back to me and said, they wouldn't even sing this song. This is evangelical conferences who will not sing about the wrath of God. If, if, if you just take for granted that talking about the reality of wrath and God saving us from His wrath is accepted by all evangelicals, it isn't. So you need to decide, is it in the Bible? And if it is, what will you make of it? So here's my first point. The greatest peril facing every person in every ethnic group in every place on earth and at every time in history is the righteous wrath of God against guilty sinners leading to everlasting suffering unless God himself rescues us from his own judgment. Poverty, 
hunger, disease, war, crime, climate change, addictions, homelessness, ignorance, sex trafficking, these bring great global suffering. And they pale in comparison to the peril of being under the wrath of God. They are all tragic, but they are all temporary. They may last a lifetime, but the wrath of God lasts forever. For one of the pillar convictions of this, this conference, and I, I said it on the panel, Christians, I hope this is true of you, Christians care about all suffering. Christians care, feel care, and act care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. How many texts have I got on this? Six? Let me say six things about the wrath of God. Five or six. One, the wrath of God is terrible and eternal. Romans 2, 6 to 8. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Eternal life, wrath and fury, and the fact that wrath and fury are contrasted with eternal life at least implies this is eternal wrath and fury. It's confirmed in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. So my first point about the wrath of God is that it is terrible. I get that from the word fury. And it is eternal, as 2 Thessalonians 1, 9 says. Number two, the wrath of God is present. It has already begun. Romans 1, 18. The wrath of God is revealed, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18. In, in America today, it would not be wrong to say that we are uh, collapsing morally at every level of, of society and ripening for judgment. That would be a true statement, I believe. It's just misleading because the collapse is judgment. And if you want to read how that works, I'm not going to read it. Just read the rest of Romans 1, and you will see what Paul means by the present 
activity of the wrath of God giving men over to their sin. So think about America's judgment in two ways. One, we're under the wrath of God. It's being poured out everywhere. And two, it's coming. Now, don't hear me as saying revival is not possible. Oh, you have no idea what God is capable of doing. And I don't want any of you to say, bring it on, Lord. Wrath. You do not want. The judgment of God begins with the household of God. First Peter 4. And you don't want to taste it as a believer even. The righteous are scarcely saved. You pray for revival. You pray for awakening. You pray for healthy churches and strong witness. You pray for amazing things to happen in the church of Christ. That's number two, it is present. Number three, the wrath of God is coming, is coming in final judgment. Chapter two, verse five. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So it's both and. It's present, and God's giving people over to their licentiousness, their sin, their bondage to evil, and he is saying they are storing up more wrath as he gives them up to wrath. Fourth, the wrath of God is owing to our sin, which exchanges the glory of God for the glory of man. Three texts put together here. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What does that mean? Romans 1.23, they exchange the glory of God for Im the glory of the immortal God for images. Romans 3.9, all are under sin. None is righteous. No, not one. Therefore, 319, every mouth is stopped, meaning nobody can fault God rightly for his wrath. It is totally warranted. It is totally just. It is totally righteous because of how serious it is to exchange the glory of God for any other glory. Number five, the wrath of God is righteous. I've already said it, I'll read it this way. Romans three, verse five. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? By no means, for then how could God judge the world? In other words, it is not unrighteous. It is totally righteous. And now number six, the wrath of God is God's prerogative, not ours. And this is the great difference between Islam and Christianity. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If your enemy's thirsty, give him something to drink. Overcome evil with good. Christians don't take God's prerogative and become the mediators of wrath. We die for our enemies. We don't kill them. We don't pronounce damnation on infidels. We evangelize them. We plead with them. We love them. We call them. We go to them. That's why this conference exists. We're not those who go out looking to show wrath to our adversaries. That belongs to God. And he assigns us to love our enemies. That's my first point. The wrath of God is the main problem everywhere in the world, in every tribe, every people group, every culture, and it is relevant everywhere to tell that to people and how to solve it, which is point number two. In the great mercy of God, in, the, in, the great mercy, in, in His great mercy, God Himself stepped into history in the person of His Son and took on a human nature so that he could endure for us his own wrath and bring us to himself in everlasting joy. <laughs> what a wildly glorious gospel. I mean, the world has never conceived of such a thing that God is angry at them and has taken on human flesh to intercept his anger so it doesn't land on anybody in Jesus. That's off the charts. Glorious. You just have to believe all the reality behind it. It doesn't make any sense if you don't have the worldview that I just described from the first point. Now, where do I see that in Romans? Let's try this. Romans 8.32. Oh, I love this verse. God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So God did not spare his own son. He had an eternal son, the exact representation of the Father, like we heard in the short talk. And he takes on human flesh, becomes a man, and gives up his son, gives up his son in death. And then verse 8 of chapter 5 he shows his love for us. Okay. If you walk out of here and somebody says, oh, they just talked about wrath at that conference. You just don't know what the love of God is unless you know the magnitude of his wrath. You don't know what the love of God is. The world talks about the love of God. They don't have a clue what the love of God is. This is the love of God. That while we were still wrath-deserving sinners, Christ, the Son of God, sent by God in love, died for us. Meaning, bore God's wrath for us. Bore our guilt. Bore our sin. What happened when Jesus died? What happened when the Son of God died? Romans 8, 3. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. He had to say likeness of sinful flesh because he said sinful. 
And Jesus committed no sin, but he looked like he was just like us. He was just like us in every way but sin. And that he was clothed as divinity. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. Can you paraphrase that? He he took on flesh, he took on flesh, and God condemned sin in that flesh. Whose flesh? Jesus, Son of God's flesh. Whose sin? He had none. How can you condemn sin in the flesh of Jesus when he had none? Our sin. J.I. Pecker sums up the whole New Testament with propitiation by substitution. That's it, just the whole message. Propitiation meaning condemnation from God, deserved by sinners, lands on a substitute. That's Romans 8, 3. This is unspeakable love. God substituting himself in his son to bear our condemnation, his wrath. He condemns in the flesh our sin. Or look at Romans 3.25. God put Christ forward as a propitiation, that's a removal of wrath, a swage, an absorber of wrath, by his blood, that is his death, this was to show God's righteousness in passing over sin. You you may have a worldly, naive view of God that says, "He he can just let it go. He can just sweep sin under the rug of the universe. No, he he can't. Not with his character of holiness and righteousness. Every sin will be punished, either in cross or in hell. No sin goes unpunished. So, in the work of Christ, everything is accomplished for sinners to be justified, and God's wrath to be satisfied, which is why we sing that song. Till on the cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's what you're singing. You're singing Romans. You're singing the summary of the book of Romans. Romans 5.9 puts wrath and the work of Christ together. Since we have now been justified by his blood, declared right because every sin forgiven and all obedience, all the Christ's obedience imputed to us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's the end time wrath. And I'll tell you, there are times after being a Christian for well over 60 years, It scares me to death. And I I have to fight for faith that I'm saved. 
I wake up in the morning and I, I, I feel vulnerable. I feel inadequate. I feel guilty. I have to preach the gospel. It's like the devil specializes in morning arrows. It's a terrible thing, the wrath of God, and you will need the covering of the cross till the day you die. So no wrath, no condemnation for those who are in Christ, Romans 8, 1. And the final effect of this message or this great work of God in Christ on the cross is that God is glorified in our everlasting joy in His glory. <laughs> I'm thinking of Romans 5, 2. Through Christ, we have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, the joy that we have in this life of suffering is a joy in the hope of being satisfied perfectly in the glory of God forever. He saved us for that. And the reason I'm a Christian hedonist is because I think the two great longings of the universe are satisfied this way, God's and mine. I want to be happy forever. I don't want to suffer forever. I'm just normal. I don't want to suffer forever. I want to be happy. And God wants to be glorified forever. That's top priority. And he has ordained a way that through Christ, a sinner like me can glorify him by being satisfied in him. Or as the beady clarified on the panel, he becomes my satisfaction. He becomes my joy. And nothing makes him look better than when he is my supreme treasure. That's point number two. God in Christ has moved in to intercept his wrath and bear it so that I don't have to. Number three, third point. In his overflowing mercy, God has decreed that this great rescue from his wrath and into his joy will not be earned by good deeds. Instead, anyone, anywhere, any people group will be saved from the wrath of God and adopted into God's family by hearing the news and believing in Jesus Christ as Savior and the supreme Lord and treasure above all things. If you confess with your mouth, this is Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I hope you don't joke about the word saved. It's an old-fashioned, religious, evangelical, wonderful, glorious word. And now, if, if you believe what I've said about the wrath of God, the word saved is one of the most precious things. I remember visiting an old man um, in my first pastoral year, Doc Wyden. He was dying. I'd never met him. 
I'm a new pastor. I got to go visit a dying veteran saint at the church. I walked in the hospital. I leaned over and I introduced myself. I said, hello, Dr. Wyden. I'm your new pastor. 34 years old. This man's probably 85. He's within hours of seeing Jesus. He opens us. Good to meet you, pastor. The greatest thing in the world is to be saved. Isn't that awesome for a new pastor to have an old saint preach to him just before he meets Jesus? Greatest thing in the world, Pastor John, is to be saved. I've never mocked that word. Like, save green stamps? Yeah, let's save green stamps. No, you don't even know what I'm talking about with green stamps. (laughs) Don't mock it. Love it. Chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call upon him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So wouldn't you agree that that text teaches There is no salvation anywhere in the world without hearing the good news. This is a great controversy. Millions of Christians do not believe this. They believe that if you don't hear the gospel, you can be saved in another way. That's not what the New Testament teaches. So that book you got on the first night here, I've got a long, detailed, exegetically weighty chapter trying to argue from the whole New Testament. Don't buy that. How shall they call upon him? They can't be saved if they don't call. They can't call if they don't believe. They can't believe if they don't hear. They can't hear if they don't preach. They can't preach if they're not sent. That's Paul's argument. And it's, it's weighty for us. So the task of making this news known is of paramount importance. My last point. Finally, number four. The feet of those who risk their lives to take the news of salvation to the unreached peoples of the world are beautiful in God's sight. So the the text I'm looking at is chapter 10, verse 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The world does not think so, but God does. My guess is that in this room, being the average human beings that you are at your age, most of you are not entirely happy with your looks. Guys know they could be more handsome and and stronger or taller, and, and, and the women wish your hair were different or wish your hips were different or just... Everybody is dissatisfied, right, with, with the way, except for a few. And that's, that's, that's okay, I think. We're just plain, right, just ordinary, plain human beings, and that's good. I wouldn't want you to be distracted with too much thinking about your own looks. But I can give you an infallible path to great beauty with biblical authority. 
How beautiful are the feet of those who risk their lives to tell the good news to others. You want to be a beautiful person. And if your feet are beautiful, goodness gracious. I mean, feet are ugly. They're gross. They smell. You have to wash them. And uh, slaves do that. And, right? It, so feet are beautiful. He means, I love looking at you. I love looking at you. You're my child and you're beautiful to me. And, and we ought to see each other that way. And the reason I say risk your lives, I, I know I'm inserting that into the text in, in Romans 10. The reason I say risk your lives is because Romans is crystal clear. Chapter 8, verse 17, if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. If we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. And that suffering refers both to the normal sorrows of life and it refers to persecution as well. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. As it is written, we are being killed all day long. That's Romans 8, 36. Most of the unreached peoples that are remaining are in places that don't want you to come and will make it hard for you if you go there. Christ will build his church, nothing will stop him. And he promised, Luke 21, you will be delivered up by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Not a hair of your head will perish. <laughs> they will put you to death, don't worry, not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This mission will not be finished without martyrs. So at the end of Romans, Paul celebrates first in chapter 16, as he closes, he celebrates first Prisca and Aquila, the couple. What does he celebrate about them? Chapter 16, verse 3, greet Prisca. And Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ, who risked their necks for my life. He thinks that's wonderful. He's thankful for it. And so it will be until the mission is finished. So let me close with this illustration. My guess is most of you have never heard of John and Betty Stam. They graduated from Moody Bible Institute and went to China as missionaries when they were 25. China Inland Mission. It was September 1932, and they ministered for two years till December 1934. On Thursday, December 6, 1934, the communists swept in to their village and took them captive. They were 25, remember. The Reds announced in the streets that these foreigners would be executed. The reason, quote, the foreigners have ruined China. Christians have always been slandered. You know, you, you would hope that you would be a martyr and they would say the real reason why you're dying instead of shaming you with a lie. But that's what they said. 
So they stripped them of their outer clothing to make the shame even worse. They led them to Eagle Hill. They had a baby. The baby was left behind in the village. They didn't even know what would happen to this baby. And they went out of the city. A young soldier lifted the sword while John knelt in front of his wife and they took off his head in front of her. She didn't scream. She trembled. She fell on his body and the same sword dispatched her to King Jesus. There is no way forward in this mission without at least a willingness for that to happen to you. If you say to Jesus anything but that, you're not a faithful disciple. We didn't urge you to come to this conference to make life easy for you. We urge you to come to make your life count, not to make it easy. So don't waste your life on superficial things. Grow deep. Get ready to die well. Give your life unreservedly to what matters. Take hold of life, which is life indeed. Turn off the television. Shut down the empty computer games. Go deep with God. Be much alone with God. The world needs godly people, not superficial worldly people who happen to be culturally hip and cool. It doesn't save anybody. You need to be weird, out of step, and full of sacrificial risk-taking love for people. So every day, preach to yourself this Romans text. In fact, I would just plead with you to memorize all of Romans 8, but here's the end of it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Who should bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, who was raised, yes, who is alive at God's right hand, who indeed intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things, mark that phrase, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your message for the nations. That's your hope in suffering. And there is no greater message and there is no greater hope. So, Father, I pray now that as we sing, you would take words that have been spoken in the other messages, words that have come from the Apostle Paul in Romans, and as they form in song on our lips, the Holy Spirit would come now and bring decisive movement from death to life, 
through faith in Jesus and movement from confusion to clarity about the future of our lives. Make our lives count for you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from DesiringGod.org. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy and share from thousands of resources on our site, including books, sermons, articles, and more, available free of charge. DesiringGod.org exists to help you treasure Jesus more than anything else, because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him.